We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, as we are recording this episode late on Sunday night, January 15, 2023. This, for many of those listening on Monday, it is Martin Luther King Day. And many of us will be having the day off from our nine to fives. So if you're listening at home while enjoying the day off, thank you for listening to this episode. I know there's a lot that's happening in the sports world, especially with the NFL playoffs kicking off. Good job, Brock Purdy, uh, as the 49ers, who I like to root for, uh, advance in the NFC playoffs and uh, also got some surprises. So it's been a pretty exciting week of football, but there's been some news for baseball and the Chicago White Sox front, as the Chicago White Sox have hired a new member to their front office to help rejuvenate the offense. We'll talk about that. The White Sox this past Sunday signed some international prospects, including Juan Aribe Jr. More about the White Sox international efforts will be covered in the Future Sox podcast, which will be released later this week with Mike Rankin and James Fox. So definitely check out that podcast episode as they break down all of the activity the White Sox made uh, this weekend so far with the international signings and maybe some additional moves that they can make on that front. But we're going to start with this podcast episode as I introduce Jim Margulis, the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, to the show The White Sox finally resolved the arbitration salaries of the players that were eligible for arbitration. And Jim, the one thing that I'm always fascinated with, especially with the offseason plan project, when we get these numbers and projections, we lean very heavily on MLB trade rumors. And when looking at the overall numbers, I have to say for this year, MLB trade rumors was pretty close for the White Sox players. Yeah, $100,000 off, uh, which is really good when you're talking about, uh, you know, 10, 12 plus million dollars. There were uh, eight arbitration eligible players at one point, the White Sox uh, non-tender Danny Mendick and Adam Engel and the outright Kyle Crick. So it rounded it down to five. So you know, the, on one hand, maybe makes it a bit easier. On the other hand, you know, makes it a bit harder. All it takes is one bad projection to alter it. So all of them were in the neighborhood. So yeah, it's it's a very valuable tool that uh, MLB Trade Rumors has. I think it was Matt Swartz who, uh, uh, his formula that they have tweaked over the years, and it's been very useful for, you know, maybe you don't, yeah, maybe one projection is like $700,000 off, but usually for the sum, if you're just trying to estimate like what the White Sox payroll is going to be, and how much of the payroll is occupied by arbitration or eligible players. Usually does a good job for the sum as a whole. And breaking it down, the list for those White Sox players that have settled with the Chicago White Sox, starting with Dylan Cease. This is his first year into arbitration, and we're going to talk about Cease a little bit more as far as his future earnings, because with him reaching his first year arbitration, 
He actually beat his projection. MLB Trade Rumors projected a $5.4 million salary, which is pretty high for a first-year arbitration starting pitcher. Cease actually got $5.7 million. Ronaldo Lopez, his projection was $3 million for this season. He actually got $3.625 million. So Lopez and Cease beat their projections. Lucas Giolito in his final year of arbitration and team control of the Chicago White Sox. His projected total was $10.7 million. He settles for $10.4 million, avoiding all of the drama that we had last year between the two differences and the very little sum that both parties were threatening to go to arbitration for until Jerry Reinsdorf had to, st- had to settle that and call Lucas Giolito and get that all sorted out. But when it comes to Cease and Lopez, before we get to the rest of the list, Jim, uh, they're the only ones that beat their projected total. Are you surprised that they're the only ones that beat their projected total? Uh, not really, just because usually there's a, I guess you call them winners and losers versus their projections. Like it, it, t- it tends to wash out. So, you know, if we're talking about like, close to a million dollars, rounding up to like a million dollar difference. That's, I think, when it becomes noticeable uh, one way or the other. But in this case, they're all, you know, rounding down, you know, $300,000 or less. Aside from Lopez is the the one who shot over. And uh, actually, he was $3.3 million. So even then, that was three point uh, or, or .325 million. So uh, all of them were pretty reasonably within their window of like, you know, rounding down versus rounding up to $1 million. And then continuing down the list, Michael Kopech, his projected total was about $2.2 million for MLB trade rumors. He settles for $2.05 million. I'm always curious on how they get to, you're going to make $2,050,000. Like, how did you get to that $50,000 mark? I, I don't know. Maybe it was really rigorous negotiation uh, from Michael Kopech's camp. Is he actually just... Uh, exchanged as far as agencies. He he transferred his uh, representation to the same agency that represents Lance Lynn and Subby Zavala. And then Jose Ruiz, his projected total was around a million dollars. He settles for $925,000. We'll get to that in a moment. So the total arbitration salaries for the Chicago White Sox from the ARB eligible players for the 2023 season is just $22.7 million. What I would like to discuss after the arbitration salaries, and again, it goes back to Dylan Cease here, Jim, mm-hmm. making $5.7 million in arbitration one. And that is a lot of money. And it's got the gears turning for me. If this is what he's making in ARB one, what is he going to make in ARB two next year? If he's another, if he turns in another season where he's a top three Cy Young candidate, and if he continues this rate, what is he going to possibly make in his final year of control with the Chicago White Sox? So what I did is I was I was going through and trying to find like the best examples because oftentimes players and the representatives, they use other players as an examples as a basis of their negotiation. And I thought that I found an easy one because C's finished in second place in the American League Scion. Well, Atlanta's left-handed starter, Max Freed, finished second in the NL Cyan. So I wanted to compare as Freed is entering his arbitration three season. And for the last couple of years, starting in 2021, in his first year arbitration, Max Freed made $3.5 million. Last year, during the 2022 season, Max Freed made $6.85 million. So between ARB 1 and ARB 2, Freed received a 196% increase in salary. And then going to 2023, Freed is one of these players that there's a gap between the ball club and the representation. Not as big as the gap as like Kyle Tucker and Bo Bichette. I think those guys have like the difference between what they want and the ball clubs are offering is more than $2 million. Here, Freed's camp wants $15 million for the 2023 season. The Atlanta Braves countered with $13.5 million. So it looks like the Atlanta Braves and Max Freed are going to go to arbitration. The Braves are offering a 197% increase from ARB2 to ARB3. Freed's camp wants a 219% increase from ARB2 to ARB3. And there is one more year of team control for the Atlanta Braves of Max Freed as he'll enter arbitration for next year. Uh, As he entered arbitration earlier as the Braves called him up and started to use Max Freed earlier. So when I compare the Freed to Dylan C, so Freed's in ARB3 right now because he's 29 years old. 
Dylan Cease is 27 years old, and he's entering arbitration one, which was the same age that Max Fried entered arbitration, Jim. So mm-hmm. already, Cease is $2.2 million ahead of Max Fried when it comes to arbitration earnings. And if I'm doing the math here, let's say if Cease pitches as well as he did this in 2022 and 2023, And let's say he gets a 196% increase in salary from ARB 1 to ARB 2, like Freed did. Then we're talking about next year that Dylan Cease could have an $11 million salary, which is still pretty cheap for the elite pitcher that he has become for the Chicago White Sox. And if he continues that going to ARB 3, I'm guessing that he could maybe make more than $21 million in arbitration salary. Like... Are the White Sox sweating here with these types of numbers of what Dylan Cease could possibly make in arbitration? Well, just to uh, you know, uh, clarify one thing, um, you know, when it comes to increases, uh, it's a, right now Freed was making nearly 100% increase year over year. So increase would be 100% versus like 200% or near 200%. So that would be truly scary. So, yeah, I mean, like... It it's uh you know it's a thing I have to check as well when it comes to uh you know writing just making sure that I'm I'm you know, representing the uh, percentages rights when it, especially when you, once you break a hundred percent it becomes like uh, kind of odd because I imagine very few of us have gotten one hundred percent raises in a job so it's very uh, unusual and, and and you know we're thinking about three or four percent is a good year for an annual raise um, but when it comes to uh, you know cease here. For somebody on his trajectory, typically, like, you know, somebody who you think is going to be, you know, in a Cy Young race or at least getting some nods and, and you know, all-star appearances seem like they could be likely for his profile. Like, I, I more or less just count on him doubling his salary. And we saw that a little bit with Lucas Giolito, um, and, then, and then he kind of hit a wall. Um, but he went from, like, $4.15 million to $7.45 million. And, like, you know, if he had, like, another huge year, you know, where he was like another top 10 Cy Young finish, you know, you we'd probably be talking about like a 13 to $14 million salary. That's kind of how I'd bank it for his final year of arbitration. Like, you know, basically what Freed is you know asking for now in Arb3, like I, I think they're pretty close, uh, which makes sense because they're Harvard Westlake teammates. So I don't know if they're uh, comparing notes when they're going into negotiations, but followed the same trajectory. But then like, you know, Gilito kind of hit a wall last year and was more or less a pedestrian pitcher. So he's now just broached uh, 10 million and barely at that, which is still good, but not what he was imagining, you know, when he turned down the, the, the four-year $50 million extension that was reported by James Fegan. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how I think about it math wise. It's just like the hundred percent nice round number, you know, doubling his salary, nice and easy to figure. And uh, yeah, I imagine for the White Sox, you know, going into future projections for their payroll and, you know, they're going to shed Yasmani Grandal after the year. Lance Lynn might not be there. How much of their salary is going to be taken up by somebody like Dylan Cease and for like somebody like Cease, if they count on him being like the new number one starter, that's probably going to be like a, a doubling the salary. And for him, I think the the fascinating part, like is if they ever went to arbitration, and I, I would say that's rare just because, uh, you know, the White Sox seldom do. Uh, there was that one weird year with uh, Avi Garcia and uh, Yolmer Sanchez where they both went to trial and they both won. Um, and then, you know, Giolito kind of threatened it last year, but that was a little bit weird with the uh, lockout uh, shortening the negotiation period. Um, you know, there is a case where, like, you know, very slim chance he might, but just assume that he won't. The, the fact that he's led the league in walks a couple times, like, where they use very traditional numbers when it comes to establishing uh you know, arbitration amounts and similarities, uh, you know, who are similar pitchers in an ARB two year, ARB three year, age year, et cetera. Uh, and, and Cease has led the league in a negative category twice in a row. I think that would be an interesting thing to hear. Like if you could be a fly on the wall of like the arbitration hearing to hear like how much the White Sox hammer that, uh, you know, hammer him with that. Uh, but just because uh, they've been able to freely agree on previous deals, you just assume they keep doing it. Um, and, and so that's ultimately a good thing for the White Sox because the arbitration hearings can get very messy. And as Jim pointed out, I am an idiot. It's 96% increase for Freed from ARB 1 to ARB 2. 
97% is what the Braves are offering for his ARB2 to ARB3. Freed wants the, he wants double. So that would be 119%. I'm an idiot. I apologize for all <laughs> those that are good at finance that you've been screaming at me. I apologize. And you're welcome. And I, I think you're right, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. Uh, I think that, that that's sound thinking for your your interpretation of what C's could possibly make. It, it is fascinating just how this is going to balloon up. And again, he's represented by Scott Boris. So it brings into the conversation that we often get or the question that we receive when we do off-season plan projects or people are looking into the future that – it would make a lot of sense if the Chicago White Sox could keep an elite starting pitcher like Dylan Cease. You spent a lot of time since you acquired him from the Chicago Cubs. And even though the White Sox didn't draft Dylan Cease, Jim, they did a lot of player development with Dylan Cease. I mean, when he joined the White Sox, he was in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. So he spent quite a bit of time in Winston-Salem and Birmingham and Charlotte. And obviously he went through some growing pains in 2020 where he's showing elite stuff, but... He's not getting a lot of strikeouts, and he made some progression, uh, progress, I should say, in 2021. And then, obviously, it all comes to fruition, and he has a terrific 2022 campaign. And he's got, you know, I'm sure with Justin Verlander now going to the New York Mets, Dylan Cease might be a preseason favorite to win the American League Scion by a lot of national outlets coming into this season. Doubling the salary, getting to $11 million, getting to 21 million, let's say his agent, Scott Boris has got to love that. And Boris clients, he encourages them to go through the arbitration process because instead of signing contract extensions or signing deals that wipes away the arbitration years, Jim, because it helps Boris with his negotiations that if C's could get up to $21 million, that's the baseline when he enters free agency uh, after his age 29 season, where I'm sure he'll be very coveted in the free agency market and he'll make a lot of cash. And Boris will know that it will be at least $21 million because the system says that my client is worth at least that much. Yeah, and when we've talked about other White Sox starters, uh, you know, Lucas Giolito, Carlos Herdon, um, you know, when we've discussed potential extensions, what it would look like for them. Uh, as long as the pitcher stays healthy, generally speaking, they can beat whatever uh, value they get for an extension. It might take him a couple of years. Like in the case of Rodon, like he had to take uh, a hit in his last year of arbitration eligibility, getting non-tendered, signing for $3 million, taking a step back, but then one big step forward in his first free agent year with the uh, Giants. And now a, a, a huge contract that the White Sox wouldn't have been able to, you know, or wouldn't have been willing to offer him an extension mode um, you know, with the Yankees. So, you know, he had to wear it for a couple of years when it came to like maybe losing some money, the White Sox might've paid him, but the Yankees and Giants have made up for it. And then some same thing with Giolito, like the, the four year and $50 million extension, the White Sox reportedly offered was very fair in terms of dollars for a four year window, because looking at it last year, like you're looking at, you know, 4.15 million, 7.5 million. So that sets up a, a, you know, under this contract extension where they buy out his remaining arbitration years and one year for agency, they're basically looking at like a 13 million arbitration year for year three, and then a $25 million contract for his first year of free agency. And right now he's, you know, a little bit behind that. He's uh, going to make $22 million instead of like 25, you know, which that contract might've paid him for. And now, you know, to make up that deal, like he would have to make $28 million in his first year of free agency. And that looks Unlikely at this point, I think we can say that just, you know, it's he's not going to get that AAV anywhere. But, you know, we talked about it with, you know, Giolito and, and Jose Barrios signing that seven year, $131 million extension. Uh, as he was getting close to free agency with the Blue Jays, the Twins didn't want to give him, want to give him that money. They traded him to Toronto. Toronto paid him. And I think that's kind of the future right now of extensions, especially once a pitcher hits arbitration. I think once he hits arbitration, you're talking about six, seven years. You're talking about seven figures, which the White Sox don't want to do. The White Sox really don't like going beyond four years uh, with any pitcher, which is why they end up getting guys like Lance Lynn, which is why they end up paying closers and relievers premium money versus paying a starter premium money. They just do not like going above and beyond that duration for a contract, which 
you know, makes sense in terms of rationality and pitcher health and everything like that. But uh, these contracts are always irrational to some degree when you're going after a guy and you just have to want it <laughs> to make it work and have to have some faith that you can work around it if it doesn't go well. So ultimately, the White Sox are not going to be able to extend them just because of their history. Like, I'd be very surprised. John Dinks did get five years that didn't go so well. They did trade for James Shields and the remaining two and a half years of his deal that didn't go well. But I mean, like, that's the kind of deal they, they look for. Like the two and a half years of a contract that doesn't look so bad. Shields got bad in a hurry. Uh, but like Lance Lynn was another one getting the last year of his deal, signing the extension afterwards. Like that's kind of what they look for when it comes to starting pitching. And otherwise they hope they can develop guys and, and get the most out of their first six, seven years, which is not a terrible strategy. Um, but it's something I've been paying attention to just, you know, the Chris Sale, Jose Quintana, Tim Anderson deals, uh, Adam Eaton deals. Those are gone, basically, you know, uh, and, and now it's these more expensive ones that are superstar insurance. And even then, when it comes to some pitchers, they, they might not want to do it. The idea that I, I just thought of, like if the, if Rick Hahn wanted to keep Dylan Cease and he still believed that this contention window will exceed the 2023 season, which don't laugh podcast listeners maybe they do believe that and they do believe that Pedro Grafal will help right the ship with the new coaching staff to get this team back in line I'm wondering if the only type of extension idea that Scott Boris would even pitch to Dylan Cease Jim would be something like three years 60 million dollars where you take care of the next two years 11 million dollars 21 million dollars and then you sign G- uh, Cease, I should say, in his first year free agency for like $28 million. Because then you're doing Scott Boris a favor. Because if Dylan Cease continues to pitch at this level, then he's already got a baseline of $28 million going to free agency. And you could hold on to Cease for one more year. I don't know how realistic that is. Scott Boris has negotiated contract extensions. The most famous case is Steven Strasburg with the Washington Nationals. That's the one I was thinking of. Not going great, but the Nationals had to pay premium. (laughs) They had to pay a premium rate. I mean, they had to pay the market rate to keep Steven Strasburg. Seven years, $245 million. Garrett Cole beat him overall as far as total numbers, but the AAV is quite similar between Cole and Strasburg. And that might be the same message as well from Boris to the White Sox front office. If they have the appetite, if they wanted to keep Dylan Cease long-term, that it would have to be one of these big contracts that we've seen for like six, seven years. And as you just mentioned, I already know the White Sox don't have the appetite for that type of contract, no matter how good Dylan Cease is. So I'm wondering if there's some type of middle ground that could be struck to keep Dylan Cease Mm -hmm. longer than the... uh, then the 2025 season, maybe keep him for the 2026 season. But as I discuss this more and just think aloud here, I don't even know what kind of team the White Sox will be in 2026. So I don't even know if they have the appetite for it. But Dylan Cease is going to make a lot of money <laughs> based on the conversation. Yeah, Steven Strasburg, actually, he signed, originally signed a seven-year, $175 million extension with the Nationals, and then he opted out for the bigger deal. Like, he opted out midway through and then was able to sign an even bigger contract. So Got it. that's kind of the, the the first contract I had in mind. And, you know, might have a similar opt-out to where, like, Cease can really uh, make, you know, even, like, you know, Garrett Cole-grade money. Uh, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking for Cease would be along those lines of the original Strasburg extension, not the second one. Because, yeah, the se- first one was okay. Second one, not so much. When did he sign the first one? That was in... Did, did Strasburg even me. get to arbitration? I'm looking at right now. Because uh, in 2016. So maybe they avoided arbitration. Yeah, May 2016. Okay. Interesting. Well, I mean, that could be a possibility. But again, the White Sox... Uh, Jerry Reinsdorf just doesn't have the appetite for that type of contract. So... Wishful thinking, but with the arbitration salaries, it's just something that came to mind. Just, wow, how much more money is Dylan Cease going to make the next two years? And looking at Max Fried and how much he's seen his increases over the seasons and getting to be the second place in the National League Cy Young last year compared to where Dylan Cease is now in arbitration one. 
Yeah, I think $11 million next year is realistic, which would beat what Lucas Giolito is making in his final year. In the final year in team control, I wouldn't be surprised if Dylan Cease exceeds $20 million in an arbitration salary. So he is not going to be cheap much longer for the Chicago White Sox. Now, someone that is cost-effective, I never want to say a player is cheap, but cost-effective here is Jose Ruiz. And with the unfortunate news, Jim, that Liam Hendricks and his cancer diagnosis, we still don't know as far as his status to start the year. We will not know his status of how long and how much of the 2023 season Liam Hendricks is going to miss until we get closer to opening day in late March. For those that are trying to mock up of what a projected bullpen is going to be with Jose Ruiz only making $925,000 for the 2023 season. I'm assuming it's safe to pencil in Jose Ruiz right now to projected bullpen. Yeah, I think it's always been safe. Like he's <laughs> Ruiz has always been this. I think his talent has been not being the, the biggest problem in the bullpen at any one point. He was always like, you know, kind of in the bottom three, but there's always somebody who is either, uh, you know, a little bit worse or has options remaining. And he's never like a crisis. He always turns into a crisis whenever the White Sox try to get like anything beyond medium leverage out of him. Uh, anytime like he's, they, they, they've, uh, you know, try to get a, a hold out of him in the eighth inning or an extra inning save. It's been kind of messy and the Peter principle rears its head. Uh, but as a low leverage guy, a guy who helps like get games over with, like he's always been pretty reliable. So, and he's always healthy. Like he's, he's pretty much always in the mix and, and ready to pitch whenever needed. So, uh, he's been able to survive and I would imagine him like continuing that just because other guys can be shuffled in and out. I think it's kind of a bigger impact for uh, Nick Avila as they look to, you know, with the rule five pick trying to figure out, you know, whether he can, um, you know, stay on the roster for any meaningful amount of time, how much of a project they want to keep in the bullpen. Like that's to me, like it elevates Ruiz up a notch and then, you know, makes maybe makes Nick Avila more of a, an opening day possibility. If it turns out like he might be Ruiz ish in terms of utility. Um, but yeah, the, I think the pressure now is on Ruiz uh, with Hendricks out. Like everybody gets bumped up one notch and he'll be held to a higher standard, I think, to where like he might have to pick up an occasional somewhat tight situation like, and, and help out, uh, especially if, you know, Joe Kelly and Kendall Graveman have their availability issues with either missing chunks of time or back-to-back -back days like Graveman had. So, uh, yeah, it's now that he's making, he's not, it's not like, I guess he's not making 1 million. We're hearing from Evan Marshall uh, about like, you know, the, the significance of making 1 million for the first time in your career. And he's not there yet. So even then, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's no amount of money. The white Sox can more or less shrug at pretty close to league minimum. But you know, with uh, you know, the, with Hendricks gone and everybody being um, bumped up one notch on the leverage ladder, I think, you know, he'll be under a little bit more scrutiny than in years past. So after the arbitration salaries and the official signing of Andrew Benatendi and Mike Clevenger, when I do my mock-up for a 26-man roster, adding in Billy Hamilton and Victor Reyes right now uh, as part of the bench for the Chicago White Sox, I've got the White Sox at $179.97 million. And the significance of that is that I know James Figueroa, the athletic, when the offseason began, and many... We're quoting the number $180 million was supposedly the White Sox budget for a projected 26-man roster for the 2023 season. And with my math, which could be way off <laughs> with just the conversation we've had earlier in the show, uh, I, I'm thinking they're right there right now at, the, at that type of payroll for a 26-man roster. Different number. Then the collective bargaining tax number, that's the number that means the most to ownership across Major League Baseball, the CBT number. That would be obviously a lot higher when you include the signing bonus for Andrew Benatendi, taxes, insurance, benefits, etc. They get added on to that total. But if you're looking at a 26-man projected roster and you're looking at that type of payroll budget, I've got the White Sox right at $180 million, Jim. Yeah, after factoring in AJ Pollock's buyout uh, to that number, then yeah, that gets around that neighborhood, and that is disappointing. Like 
when it comes to you know where the White Sox are, the rebuild, or not the rebuild, I should say, but this contention window is now in, I think it's fair to say, critical condition, um, you know, not stable, <laughs> not, uh, uh, and you know, it kind of should be throwing more money at the problem because if it doesn't go well or if it turns out to be more money poorly spent, money starts coming off the books next year and then especially after 2025 flying off the books so if the White Sox want to reallocate some funds and uh, wait out some contracts and try to build a new roster around another you know whether it's Colson Montgomery and you know Oscar Colas or you know other players like there are other ways to do it so it is you know I, I think poor planning to take a step back after record payroll I think it should be at this stage two record payrolls in a row uh, before giving up but you know, as we're going to talk about, uh, and, and this is going to be a great segue, uh, after the break, uh, the White Sox do seem like they're putting more resources into other parts of the organization to try to make the most out of the money they're already spending. So at least there's that. Yeah, we're going to be talking about that next after we take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. But the Chicago White Sox add another member to their front office to help the offense. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'll go back to the Sox Machine podcast. All right, I promise no more financial numbers from me for the rest of the episode. I have put myself temporarily on suspension from doing really terrible math in this episode. But let's talk about the new front office member the White Sox hired as they hire Sam Mondry Cohen to their staff. And if you don't know Sam Mondry Cohen, there is a good feature that I included the link into the podcast page on SoxMachine.com in which the New York Times, during the Washington Nationals' run to the World Series in 2019, they did a feature story about Mondre Cohen. And he started his career with the Washington Nationals working as a ball boy and just kept being really involved and building relationships within the Washington Nationals. And they discovered that they have some kind of wonder kid uh, on their hands, and he became one of the first analytics employees for the Washington Nationals. He built their analytics platform, which they call Pentagon, very fitting for a Washington, D.C.-based team. And uh, thanks to Andre Cohen's efforts, he won a World Series reign in 2019. And his platform, the Pentagon platform, is focused on receiving feedback from the national scouts, which at the time when Mondre Cohen was an employee there, the nationals had quite a few scouts and he would get their feedback before implementing new metrics into the dashboard because he wanted to reassure that all levels of the organization, the players, the coaches, the scouts were comfortable with the data that he was presenting and avoid any type of information overload. And thanks to the reporting to James Figgett of The Athletic, it sounds like Mondre Cohen, his task is to work with the Chicago White Sox hitters. And as you mentioned before the break, Jim, so essentially the White Sox have like three hitting coaches, and now mm -hmm. they're adding 
Sam Mondry Cohen to their front office staff, and he is going to be traveling with the Chicago White Sox all season. He is going to be embedded with the ball club for every single game during the regular season. We'll probably see him during spring training camp, which is just a month away down in Glendale, Arizona. The White Sox are throwing a lot of resources internally as far as support staff and trying to help their hitters hit better this season. Which is good. You know, it's the kind of thing where you can dwell on it a little bit and say like, well, it would have been great if they did this two years ago. If they hired like a Pedro Grafal type two years ago, not so much Grafal himself, but maybe like somebody who just was as enthusiastic about certain, you know, I guess AJ Hinch would fit under this, but just like, you know, certain, you know, personnel uh, being with a team that maybe, you know, the, the manager does not know or wasn't a player, but is, you know, they're very conversant and good at working with players and gaining the players trust and respect versus like what they've done, like kind of half measures. Um, you know, we talked about like, you know, Jose Abreu uh, buying iPads for people and Larry Garcia going off YouTube and, they did have Shelly Duncan in that role, I guess, nominally, but it's hard to know like what kind of impact he had because uh, on one hand, you know, Tony La Russa had a very top-down administration. He was very much the uh, overwhelming presence, whether it was because of just his name recognition or the way he actually ran things. But we didn't really hear too much about, you know, we heard from Ethan Katz, heard from Frank Minichino, but otherwise it's very much La Russa when it came to his decisions, his questionable decisions like bench coaches, Really didn't figure in. We didn't hear much about Jerry Naren or from Miguel Cairo until Cairo took over later in the year. So if we didn't hear from them at all, it makes sense that we wouldn't hear about Shelly Duncan either, just because like, you know, he's even lower down the chain. But it also seems like, you know, Duncan was a, you know, if if Duncan wasn't like just a nepotistic hire, like, oh, I can't get Dave Duncan, so I'm going to hire his kid, which could very well be the case. You know, just a, a Duncan program uh, or Duncan jobs program. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a case where just it might have been a case where like Duncan was by player standards analytically inclined and, and knew how to work his way around um you know, fan graphs numbers and baseball savant and everything, just, you know, the, the, the general numbers and, and had an interest in that, you know, showed an acumen kind of like um, Brian Bannister was kind of like the, uh, I think maybe the first player known for, um, you know, getting into that data himself. And, and, you know, but I think that player is a little bit outmoded now. And I think there's either, you know, players who really get into it or like really go, you know, have, have really made a name for, uh, themselves, you know, and Bannister has continued that, like he got a head start on everybody else and continues to be that kind of guy. But otherwise, you know, you, you see more of these, you know, hitting experts, uh, you guys have their own hitting lab, you know, might've been like low minor leagues players and, um, you know, didn't, you know, couldn't get to even like double or triple a, but really figured out how to help guys with their swings and, and really use video and, and, and biomechanical, uh, sensors and everything like that to really understand, uh, what makes a swing tick. And I, I think the, the guy, uh, Duncan, who's a ball player could speak analytics and that's all he does. Um, if that's the kind of guy he actually was, you know, isn't enough now. So I think, you know, it's good that the White Sox have hired, uh, Mondry Cohen to be in that role. And, and, you know, James Fegan has a story about Rod Larson doing the same thing on the pitcher side. Like Everett Tiford was the player equivalent of a, you know, major league player who was conversant in that stuff and continued to be, uh, you know, understand, uh, how pitch mixes work. And, and, you know, he's a couple steps above like a Duncan type who would just be conversant in the basic analytics of sequences and pitch data and pitch effectiveness, that sort of thing. You know, now having not a play, you know, people who were not players, but are able to be involved in the clubhouse and, and deliver data directly to players and, and, and having uh, the leeway uh, and, and the blessing of the coaching staff to do so is huge. And if it is, you know, uh, a transformational to certain hitters, whether it's like, you know, Aloy Jimenez finally breaking through, Yohan Makata getting out of his rut and and, and, and succeeding, or, uh, you know, Lucas Giolito getting back on track, like all these, you know, just you know, this this embrace of analytics and, and these guys who are, um, you know, non-players getting really involved in everything. Like if they're able to take the next step or take the step that was missing last year, um, then great, you know, great. like, you know, better late than never. But uh, if it 
you know, if, if it becomes a case where like Mancata figures it out, but Jimenez doesn't or vice versa or Andrew Vaughn unlocks something, but other guys can't stay healthy. It really does feel like it's going to be like they really could have used the two years that they no longer have to get this all together. So time is of the essence. And it's great that the White Sox, if they can't get the payroll to get to 200 million or whatever, to really spend what they, they should have been spending, at least they're doing something else besides crossing their fingers. Like there is actual... I would say some ingenuity and, and maybe, maybe you might consider other teams ingenuity because the White Sox aren't the first team to hire these guys, but at least they're, they're following the playbook, acquiring promising free agents on that front to where that, like if they can't you know, sign a, a seven year deal for a guy, well, maybe they can sign like the equivalent baseball ops person just to try to help get the most out of the guys that they you know, are already counting on. It does make me wonder, as you mentioned, Larusa, the top-down leadership, his observational analytics, which we made fun of constantly in his two years as managing the White Sox. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if it set the White Sox hitters back when it comes to just approaching analytics. There wasn't a great jump-off point to begin with. But whatever progress during the rebuild that Rick Hahn in the front office was trying to implement into the organization, I wonder if that just washed away when LaRusa showed up and he tried to go with an old school approach. And now here you have Pedro Grafal, who is trying mm-hmm. to blend the two, but Grafal is the one that led the charge for the Kansas City Royals to embrace data, especially from an aspect of in-game decision making. Pedro Grafal has been on record saying that he is expecting his players to have a baseline understanding of analytic knowledge. And I'm wondering just uh, how many of the White Sox current position players would pass Grafal's test of if they know enough about analytics uh, to help improve their play on the field or to be able to identify weaknesses they may have in their game and address those weaknesses when it comes to spring training camp that starts in a month and now you add the three hitting coaches and now you add Sam Montre Cohen, the players themselves may be running out of excuses here, Jim, because unlike with Frank Menachino and he had an assistant hitting coach and Tony, the Russa in the mix, it's new faces, it's new ideas and there is more support staff than we've ever seen before from the Chicago White Sox. And It's bringing in outside ideas we have not seen part of the Chicago White Sox organization. And I know that I've been very critical of Rick Hahn, but this is the type of move that we've been waiting for Rick Hahn to make as we have learned from the other franchises of Major League Baseball and what they do to tick, what they do to be successful on the field, especially in player development. I view the hiring of Mondre Cohen as a positive. I know he didn't get the best results in Cincinnati, but I think the hire of Jeff Head could help with the White Sox, especially interpret the data and be able to point out red flags in player performance if they are noticing something with throwing speed, especially with position players and with sprint speed as well to be able to early identify possible injuries in players to give them a game off before they suddenly pull a hamstring and now they're on the injured list. Like I like the direction the White Sox are going here. And as I mentioned, if this doesn't work in 2023, well, the support staff is there. Now it's, are are the players just not good enough? And that's a depressing topic. Yeah. Well, (laughs) uh, one of the things I was thinking of when you're talking um, about, you know, just the buy-in it's going to require from hitters and whether they're going to be able to do that is in some cases, in some clubhouses, you could see like a little bit of a potential mutiny or potential for it. Just I'm thinking of like Jace Tingler in San Diego or uh, AJ Hinch, his first stint in Arizona, where he had some ideas, but he also didn't have like the strongest personality. Players saw the managers like a maybe an extension of the front office, maybe too much of an extension of the front office. Like, what kind of autonomy are, do you have if you're spitting these numbers at us, that sort of thing? Like, and you're not like you know reading the room. You, you hope that Grafal's reputation as a communicator would trump that. But just you know, there are some elements here of like a case where like you know new guy who has never played in the majors coming in and trying to set new rules and overhaul the system. I, I think, you know, in Grafal's favor, 
the White Sox were terrible last year relative to expectations. Like, you know, they didn't have the worst record, 500, et cetera, but like they were bad. The offense was bad. The offense did not work. Uh, the lineup did not work. The lineup didn't play together all that often. So, you know, Liam Hendricks talked about how the White Sox need like an authoritarian figure in the dugout. And, you know, that's not Griff Hall style, but just like it is a regime change. Um, and, and maybe if it's not, you're, you're not going from like a, a dictator or something, but you are going to like a, a new um, way of doing things, uh, a new mode, a new model. And that's going to be, you know, like in, in Griffal's favor, like if it doesn't work, there will now be two years of bad performances, you know, as an offense in the whole, maybe three years when we're talking about certain players. And now it becomes, you know, the, the onus is on the player. The, you know, some players can be, um, you know, moved off the roster. Some players can be weighted out, but like, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, a case where like there is more in Grafal's uh, corner than there might you know, usually be for a rookie manager taking over a veteranish team um, who has never played the majors before. And, you know, now that they have two and a half hitting coaches, like they are, it does look like the front office does have the back of the instruction. And like, if, if these guys, if we can't get through these guys, uh, we're going to have to find new guys to get through. And that kind of, that, that's what it strikes me as um, that uh, Griffal is going to have a lot of leeway unless like, and I don't know what it take. You know, <laughs> I just saw the decision-making of LaRusa, not just on the field, but just like playing guys who were obviously hurt. Like the standards for decision-making on all sorts of fronts are very low for Grafal to improve, which I think is a little bit of a danger for the White Sox. Like they have to make sure they're getting like a good manager and not just a manager who's better than what LaRusa showed in his second year. But uh, yeah, there, it's, it's going to be um, a really new dynamic here. Um, and I guess the good news is we've seen on the pitching side, um, certain pitchers, and I think most pitchers have embraced it. We've seen guys, you know, overhaul their, uh, mechanics guys, overhaul their pitch mix, uh, and, and really embrace it. Ethan Katz, I think, uh, is a dork about it in a good way. Like he, he, he really, you know, he made his name on really getting involved in, uh, you know, helping pitchers improve their stuff, core velocity belts before that became known. Um, and, and, you know, all that, uh, you know, now common knowledge was not common when Ethan Katz was making his name. Um, you know, they had Rod Larson, who, as we mentioned, is the, you know, Sam Mondry Cohen, uh, template uh, on the pitching side, Everett Tiford was the player, uh, ambassador beforehand. Uh, so like the pitching side has been ahead of this for a couple of years now, like I would say two to three years. Uh, whereas like the White Sox, you know, Shelly Duncan was not enough. I think if Menachino was trying to get like his data cues from Shelly Duncan, uh, and, and you know, Menachino was not like data averse. He just wanted somebody else to do it for him. Like the White Sox did not have enough guys to do it for him. And if Menachino was rejecting data, then yeah, I mean, kind of good riddance on that front and, and, uh, you know, uh, there won't be much of a future for him in the game, but hopefully, uh, the pitching side will provide like enough of a, um, showcase for what works for helping guys get better to where like hitters will, you know, if they're saying like, who's this guy, you know, who, who's this, you know, dork for a better, like a better word, like, uh, you know, telling us what to do and just, you know, hopefully they can say, well, you know, the, the dorks on our side have helped out a lot and that'll kind of ease the way for any kind of tension if there is any, but as you mentioned, uh, with the performances they are coming off of and the amount of guys who have to improve, hopefully they're open-minded enough to take cues from anybody uh, that the White Sox are sending to them to help them get better. Well, Tim Anderson has already gone to the driveline lab. I mean, he already posted that video of him getting modeled, getting scanned, taking swings in the cage. We don't know the full details of what his game plan is working with driveline, but Tim Anderson's already one example of the Chicago White Sox going to the nerds, going to the dorks, looking for ways to improve. So hopefully everybody else has the same type of mindset, even though Anderson went outside the organization of being open to this new coaching staff and being open to a new face in Sam Mondry Cohen, who's had success with this platform. He's got a world series ring recently. And we knew that Washington nationals team could hit as they uh, upset the Houston Astros that season back in 2019. So I, I, I'm really fascinated to see 
and how this new support staff works and what kind of immediate impact they bring to the White Sox offense. And we're going to get a lot more of those stories as, again, spring training is going to start in a month. And I think the early stories out of camp that everyone's going to write, Jim, especially from the beat reporters that head down to Glendale, Arizona, is what's the difference between Pedro Grafal and Tony La Russa? And we may get more insight in a month on just how things actually operated <laughs> yeah. with La Russa in the clubhouse, not getting these tidbits that would have been very helpful in our conversations the last couple of years. Now the truth will actually come out uh, with Larusa yeah. not around. Yeah, everything about, like, basically so far, it seems, every bit of praise they've heaped upon, whether it's Pedro Grafal, the new hitting coaches, uh, now with Sam Mondry Cohen, like, has been, like, a passive-aggressive roast of the previous administration. Like, we're going to prepare players pregame. We're not in it to hit singles. We're not going, like, just everything's like, uh, so what was it before is the next question in, like, that's what it was before. So yeah, it's kind of what I'm thinking. And you mentioned like the, you know, the, the Pentagon database. And I remember that the Astros is ground control. So I'm wondering like, would the Chicago equivalent be uh, like the Manhattan project for, you know, the uh, nuclear fission tests under the uh, football stadium uh, at uh, university of Chicago or uh, pile. I think it was pile one was the name of the reactor there. So like maybe pile one would be the name of the database uh, in order to make it geographically relevant, but also kind of, uh, you know, have ties to advanced science and with some potential, you know, militaristic uses. I, I like it. I, I wasn't thinking of like, what would the White Sox name their new analytics database if they are building one with Sam Mondry Cohen, but that would be some good suggestions for all of you history nerds and buffs. And what, what recommendations would you make in the White Sox naming their new data platform if Sam Mondry Cohen starts building one? I, I do like the reference to the Manhattan Project, Jim. I, I do like that one. Yeah, it's like, I think Fermilab's still going. Otherwise, you could call it that. <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. But I hope you enjoyed our conversation as that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you, guys so much for listening to this episode. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. We do post the episodes to our YouTube page, which you can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. Last I looked, we're at 950 subscribers to the channel. We're just 50 subscribers Woo. away from our milestone at 1,000. Uh, so if you could do us a favor, if you do enjoy watching videos on YouTube, please help us and subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Socks Machine. If you enjoy our work and you would like more, you can sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where we have several different tiers of support, including our new tier, the Veterans Committee, which you get to serve as our de facto bounce board, where you get direct access to Jim and I as far as in a group chat and patreon exclusive events that we'll be hosting as we're going to be curling in a couple of months as well we may do a little meetup as well for those that are heading to cincinnati for the road trip in early may and we do have monthly plans that start at two dollars as our patreon supporters they get exclusive content ad free versions of both the podcast and website and we have new socks machine swag to the first ones to receive it you could also sign up for an annual subscription at patreon.com slash socks machine the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Mm-hmm.